0: You're listening to the Inside Intercom Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Adam Russman, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Today's episode comes to you via the Inside Intercom World Tour, our recently launched event series that's all about what it takes to make great product. We kick things off in front of a sold-out crowd at the Boiler House in London. Among a handful of talks, Intercom Managing Editor John Collins hosted a panel of guests from our favorite London based startups, which we'll share with you in this episode. Each guest gives their take on issues startup folk face on an everyday basis, such as tackling the difficult tasks of pricing and hiring, pros and cons of taking VC funding, and of course, the shared traits of successful product. Panelists include Bridget Harris, the CEO and co founder of You Can Book Me, software that allows customers to schedule time on your calendar online.
2: I think the VC funding route is probably the only option for certain types of business when you need a lot of upfront capital, but it will change your business plan, it does change your priorities, and it will start to set a direction.
1: Will Swannell, CEO and co-founder of Hirespace, an online portal for venue rentals. Obviously, you need a great product, um, you need a great, great marketing team.
3: um, But I think having a culture inside the company that is really treating every interaction as a sales opportunity is something that's that's really helped us to grow.
1: And James Blackwell, the co-founder of BuzzSumo, a search engine that lets users analyze trending content and influencers on social networks.
4: Ensure you have the market in mind for who you're building the product for. It just goes back to making sure you're building something actually people want want, and it serves a clear purpose.
1: If you like what you hear, check out intercom.io slash insideintercom for our full list of upcoming European and US tour dates, as well as ticket links. And with that, let's hop into the panel.
0: I'd like to start, I suppose, by talking about an issue that is near and dear and causes lots of controversy at startups, pricing. James, you had an interesting experience. I mean, you had a product in beta, and you were going around showing it off, and people were kind of assuming, oh, it's going to be this $10 a month product. But you decided on something quite different.
4: Yeah, I think it's a bit of a cliche. Everybody under prices. But before we first launched our pro version of our product, are we kind of showing it to a lot of friends and family, asking kind of what, what price do you think we should charge? We really have no idea, to be honest. I mean, ultimately, I think you have to just pull, figure out thin air. And we we pulled out $99 a month, and a lot of people looked at us like we were crazy. Like, there's no way you'll get this. And I'm thinking more like $10 a month, $20 a month. But yeah, we, we launched and just stuck with $99, and we hadn't had any difficulty growing with that price point. And I often feel that we've underpriced based on that a lot of the time. So I think generally lean to the highest end of what you think you can get away with and then probably add a bit on.
3: And will, will you uh, you kind of have a similar
0: view in that you think probably people need to be quite bold in terms of pricing?
3: Right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've I mean we, we've got two, two sort of products that we price. We've got a, a sort of commission that venues pay uh, for the business that we refer them, and also that they pay for extra marketing. And I think both of them we underpriced initially, um, and have had to move up. And that has been quite a painful process for us. You know, increasing your price when you realise that you've really underpriced is, is a really difficult thing to do. Um, so I guess yeah, my advice would be to make sure that you don't do that because Coming down is pretty easy, everyone loves that, but moving up is quite difficult, so it's, it's, it's important to make sure that you don't underprice initially.
0: Price high and boldly.
3: Yep. Bridget, do
0: you guys have a, a freemium model as well? How is that? Yes, yeah,
2: so we totally underpriced at the beginning because we gave it away for free. <laughs> I mean, that's actually, in retrospect, I would have probably done that very differently because I think giving something away for free, hoping that people will just come along and that will grow your product, and then you'll just sort of sneakily charge for a few features. It was actually a lot more complicated than that. And we've had lots of adventures in pricing, and I completely agree. Much better to come in high and then reduce your prices than sort of tentatively and nervously charge low, thinking that's going to encourage more people through the door because actually what you end up doing is undervaluing your own product and then, and then all of the other you know, consequences to that is having to justify why you have to put your prices up and also just as another point is we've recently changed our pricing our whole team has been involved in the last four months changing the way we price the entire product because our original pricing model which was premium professional business tiers you get this for that you get that for this was very complicated to explain we actually couldn't remember what features you'd get on each plan everybody was negotiating the whole time and we changed to a model which was about much more unit-based pricing so people could instantly see one simple price for one unit and then if by volume they have 10 times that unit then they know they're paying 10 times the price easier to explain. Much easier to price against larger companies. Pay more, and I hope that we've we've ended up with a pricing model that's going to work a lot better for us.
3: It's if you don't put value on what you have, like customers are not going to put value on it. Is that will that be a fair point? Uh, I think yeah, yeah, fair, fair point. I, I think the point in simplicity as well is is really really important. Uh, on, on day one, we launched with. Uh, a, a sort of variable commission with venues and it was, it was very difficult to communicate. I think if you, if you can't answer the question how much does it cost with no more than two words then it's probably too complicated. Mm.
0: By their nature, startups are set up to grow and to grow you need to hire a team to work with you. Well, how's hiring been for you? Because everyone, everyone I talk to in startups says hiring is really hard, it's one of the hardest things.
3: I think it's something that's, that's really difficult but it's it's something that's got a lot easier as we've grown I think early on it's it's quite easy to sort of slip into temptation not to value the importance of, of of HR and the the skill that goes into finding the right people for your company and I think as we've grown it's something that we've we've learned and I looking back I, I wish that we'd we'd valued that side more
0: don't, but don't engineers naturally
3: suspicious of HR and recruiting well, I, yeah I, I wish we'd hired an HR professional a lot earlier in um, in our journey uh, I think it's quite easy to have look at that because it, there's a lot of skills that, that they have that, that you won't have as a founder. I mean, we've done it earlier.
0: Bridget, you've thought a lot about hiring and read a lot about you, tell me.
2: I I absolutely agree. Don't underestimate how hard it is, because not only are you dealing with a whole load of employment legislation and compliance and rights and employment protection, which is obviously really important, we hire across Europe and also in the US. So we've learned an awful lot about different regulations in different countries. But actually, one of the things that are core to our hiring is uh, we chose to be a remote company, because something that controls, I mean, obviously, if you're in the middle of London, it's great, but we're actually based north of London, and we work going to convince everybody to come to our office in Bedford, so we now hire remotely which opens up your hiring pool which is is great, but then you do need as you say, sort of proper procedures, we have good software we use great software for our HR which covers all the different European countries and regulations, we have job tracking and all sorts of other ways to essentially put people into different hiring funnels, and then we we did a lot of reading up about the hiring process because we had a lot of sort of hit and misses at the beginning, we made lots of mistakes and um, Joel on software, Joel Spolsky from um, Stack Exchange, I really recommend you read his, he's got like a guerrilla guide to interviewing three-part blog. I re really recommend it because he's just got a very simple bit of advice, which is when you're hiring, you have two outcomes, hire, no hire. And really, that's the choice you make. And so now that once we're hiring, I see it much more as a process of, el- of elimination rather than selection. So essentially, I'm finding reasons not to hire somebody. Um, and then you don't make the mistake of hiring somebody that you didn't think was quite right, but maybe was going to be okay in six months time, just in case they got the right kind of training and then in six months time you realize they were never the right hire and you shouldn't have hired them in the first place.
0: I, I mean as a startup you don't have six months do you? you if you make the wrong choice. James despite being technical co-founder you kind of said to me that actually startups probably spend sometimes too much time thinking
4: about tech. I think that's a trap technical co-founders fall into a lot more than non-technical co-founders. Um, yeah it's very very easy to get sucked into technical decisions and it probably don't necessarily matter that much in the scale of things. I think it ties into overly worrying about scaling up the product as well. The key thing is not, not to worry too much about the tech. In, your job as a startup is to kind of build technology, not just learn a load of new technologies and piece them together. So if you're using all new frameworks, all new databases, the latest new stuff all the time, I think that's going to make things more difficult because it takes a lot more time to learn that stuff. There's a lot less answers out there already on Stack Overflow, etc. Um, but I suppose conversely, occasionally you do need to make a few bets, I think. So for once, I don't know if there's many developers in the crowd, but we, um, we made a little bit of a bet and used a new, relatively new technology when we started called Elasticsearch. And that paid out okay, but it took an awful lot more time and energy to, to use that because it just took so much more time to learn it. And it's only now getting to the point where there's a certain amount of answers to help you. So I think, you know, choose your bets carefully when it comes to new technologies. Uh,
0: you guys, you're what, both summer, two years in now, so that like you're starting um, to see that payoff? Yeah, I mean, pay off?
4: We started building the product three years plus, but as a kind of business we've been going for about two years
3: now.
0: Will, I mean, any sort of things that you think people don't think about soon enough that you would, you know, if you are starting again, that you would have looked at early on?
3: Um, I think one of the things we'd have done earlier is looking at our sales process a lot earlier on. O- obviously, you need a great product, um, you need a great great marketing team, um, but I think having a culture inside the company that is really treating every interaction as a sales opportunity is something that's, that's really helped us to grow, by thinking of some of the interactions we had just before. Letting a customer know that they've got a voice in your company is it like is really important, but it, like it's part of a step down a funnel to actually try and get them to be yeah, at the point when they're paying and like really valuing that, that culture within your company because it, it can like sales can be quite a dirty word sometimes. You can I think it's quite often seen people fall into the trap of just wanting to build something that's that's beautiful but not thinking about actually making sure that people part with their money and buy it so I think building a culture where that's good is, is really important. It's
0: a bit like the musician they just keep recording the same song because they know they can get it better but if you haven't released anything it doesn't really
2: matter does it?
3: Yeah well, yeah. I haven't released anything and, and, and also haven't persuaded all your mates to come to the gig and tell all their mates to come to the gig as well um, I, think I think Kevin it's hard isn't is it? I think
2: especially in Britain it's very hard for us to be super braggy and selly and yeah. we tend to always sort of self-deprecate what we're doing and to sort of, you know. we're, we're and, 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 awful <laughs> we're <so laughs>
3: really
2: bad. bad and I think you know if you you read more of the blogs and the startup stories from America, they are just absolutely brilliant at selling themselves, selling their product and actually feeling confident about what they're doing. Whereas we're kind of super embarrassed about the fact that we want to run a business because we think that we're going to look, you know, like idiots.
3: Yeah, I think yeah. Hiring, I think we do. I don't know. hiring a North American head of sales was uh, yeah one, one, one of the sort of big uh, big sort of good decisions that we made. The, the culture, is, I think, a lot like a lot more healthy for a, for a fast-growing company. And James,
0: I think you mentioned to me as well. People often marketing is the same. People kind of like
3: leave marketing as if it's something you can sort of
4: tack on after yeah. a couple of years. Exactly. I think you need to have at least some sort of marketing plan or some distribution plan in mind when you start. I think one mistake I made previously trying to get another startup kind of off the ground was, I was just spent months and months building something and you think, okay, cool, I'll promote this at the end of it and then we'll market it. And I think that's just the wrong attitude to have because so, it takes so much energy out of you and you get to that point and then if you haven't really got a clear plan or some structure in place to market the product by then, you just won't have the energy on the resources. And The other important thing I think is to ensure you have the market in mind for who you're building the product for. So it just goes back to making sure you're building something actually people want um, and it serves a clear purpose. And Bridget, you had quite practical advice for startups at an early stage, like maybe quite
0: prosaic, kind of boring well, stuff. But it's really boring, boring stuff. really
2: boring. Um, so um, basically, if you've got an ambition to run a business and you want it to have a multi-million pound turnover, that's a lot of money that you have to account for, especially if you're in it, like our tool is a SaaS tool, so we have lots of transactions every month. And so things like dealing with VAT, you know, sales tax, if you're selling to America, sales tax is a nightmare across America. Things like just basic compliance, um, company return, just knowing what your PL is, knowing how much profit you're making, identifying whether you're spending money in the right places and you're not wasting money on other areas, um, all of the other HR stuff that goes in with it. And very quickly, your dodgy spreadsheets are just not going to do it anymore. And if anybody in this room is every quarter still counting up your receipts for your VAT return, you know, you have got to sort that problem out because it's not scalable and you make lots of mistakes. And it was only until we, I shouldn't actually say this publicly, but our VAT, Put it this way, our VAT compliance was on slightly thin ground until we put it into online accountancy software. It's pretty easy. We use Xero. We re- I recommend Zero, but there's loads of other software tools out there. And just online accountancy will sort it all out for you to one click, and you've figured it out. And we did it. We'd been running our accountancy for two or three years before we, we chose to use Xero, and we basically reset our accounts from the bank balance when the bank balance was, had zero pounds in it, and we did it from then. And then you could see all your financial years, for five years, and it starts to give you because of course there 's a whole lot of other family of products that will then integrate with zero and will give you all this wonderful reporting about your growth rates and about your revenue rates and about what you 're doing and so at the very beginning, things like balance sheet and p l and cash flow all this feels like oh I'd, you know i 'm building a product, I have a vision but actually. Ultimately, if you don't know whether you're making money or not, your business isn't necessarily going to be strong enough, and you need to understand that. And I would say that along with HR software, we use Bamboo HR. It's an American product, but it works perfectly well for Britain. Really, really good. Find anything that's going to integrate and automate all your corporate and business processes, because it will help you at the beginning to do the vast majority of your stuff in a very low-cost and automated way.
0: Hopefully there's no one in from HMRC tonight. Um. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> Luckily, it was a very small amount of
0: uh, um, VAT. Maybe we can change tack slightly and talk about financing. I mean, certainly we're, we're we're based in Dublin. London is seen as sort of the VC capital of Europe, and there's like you know the streets are awash in, in VC money. But all of you have gone down different routes than, than take on a lot of VC. I mean. Can you, can you talk about that and maybe what was it a conscious decision or like what are the pros and cons of taking on VC versus what you did? Right,
4: James, Johnny? you want to? Um, I mean, for us, we, we ended up raising money before we even ever started looking for, for money. So we just launched BuzzSumo as a kind of project, essentially just posted on the Hacker News. And then we were still in the really early days of just contacting people on Twitter, trying to get some feedback. Uh, and then in that process, about a week in, we met a guy called Steve who just sold his company and really liked the idea um, so we weren't looking for investment at all but he just said i'm quite happy to put in some seed money get you set up as a business and we've never had to raise any more money since then so it hasn't really been been a focus for us so i haven't got much advice specifically on <laughs> on raising financing but and Will, obviously, I said
0: earlier you're going down the crowdfunding route. What's attractive about that, or or, sh- or should I ask you in six months' time?
3: I think the well, I think the thing that's most attractive about crowdfunding, um, it's it's not the money itself. Except like as you said, you, you know, like you can go and get get, get money from, from from other sources, but it's about building uh, building a community of people who are really bought into your product, and if, if those are your users, the people who are for us who are booking events or who, who own venues, and they 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 feel really you know really part of your journey. The, the feedback that they'll give you and have already started to give us people who pre-committed it's you know like it's, it's really really powerful and you know the, the, like it's not just going to be the feedback they give you it's going to be what they're saying to their friends and so for me that's that's the really powerful part of, uh, of crowdfunding okay and Bridget bootstrapping Do you recommend it?
2: Um, Yeah, I do, actually. I really, really do. And for us, it was probably accidental. But then, laterally, we figured out a theoretical justification for it. I think we started, you know, in in the way that James described, we started building lots of products. Um, My co-founder, Keith, uh, is a technical CTO, and he basically just would write lots of web applications, and we would sort of send them off and see whether they would fly. And we didn't think, or we weren't thinking in the world of startups and investment and VC and rounds and all the rest of it. Um, So I think it's probably fair to say that we only actually started running a business about three years ago and and then the focus is to make money and make yourself profitable and I think the VC funding route is probably the only option for certain types of business when you need a lot of upfront capital but it will change your business plan, it does change your priorities and it will start to set a direction because you're basically you've got expectations of investors on the table at that point. I think for me and Keith our choice was to retain control and retain, actually in a very similar sort of fashion, we're basically funded by our customers, we're funded by the people who use you can book me. So we're we're revenue funded and we reinvest the money that they give us for their upgraded accounts into choices about the tool. And then you can have all of these exciting discussions about what you want the product to be like, what problem are you solving, where you want to grow. And you just have to accept that it happens in much more organic steps than having a 50 million pound injection of cash, which is fabulous. If you know you've got like a big long shopping list of where you want to grow globally, Um, we're happy right at the moment with still growing very organically and getting all of the base of our product right?
0: For the record, it's $50 million. Oh,
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's, a very different, it's a very different model. Jeff said earlier there's, there's no business without customers. Uh, but, you know, I suppose the, the stereotypical view of a startup is you, you build this product, you buy some Google AdWords, and Bob's your uncle, everything's fabulous, but uh, as we all know, life's a lot more complicated than that. If you had one sort of thing you've learned about acqu- customer acquisition or getting customers, or one thing you wanted to share with people, what would it be?
3: Um, well, I, th- I think there's no right answer for for every start, but like it's, it's completely different. I mean, like all, all, all three companies are going to be going to be so so different. So I think the most important thing is to make sure that you're that you're measuring it um, and measuring it effectively. Because an acquisition channel for me will be completely different for you. But if you make sure that you're able to measure like all the way through the profit that like, each like, new interaction or customer give, give you, and make sure that you're, you're matching that with your cost of acquisition. Um, then that's kind of what's important. And making sure you've got that infrastructure for ensuring that those ratios are the right way around. That's more important than the the sort of creative ideas about how you might market it one way because you you just won't be knowing if it's working. Yeah, I mean, we've
4: done relatively little paid advertising acquisition as well. I think it just goes back to making sure that the product is actually doing something that somebody's willing to pay for. So maybe it's more, only applies in the B2B product space, but if you're helping somebody do part of their job, then there's a high chance somebody's going to pay for that, I think. So we just try and focus on that, tie everything back to how is this actually going to help somebody get stuff done. Bridget?
2: We, we had an experience of, we still do have a product which is live called whenisgood.net and it has very few customers. So we know what it's like to have a really high volume tool with no customers. And then when we launched You Can Book Me, we immediately started to get customers. So that gave us a huge amount of confidence about following our noses with You Can Book Me and it was customer-led because we realized we had something which was a problem that people were willing to pay for. And I think that the, the, the sort of principles that you can apply which work universally are things like when you get one customer to pay for your product, you can get 10 customers. Customers like that, that customer. Or put it a different way, if you actually find yourself bending over backwards to convince one person to pay for your product that only happened because you went round their house, made them tea, and took them through you know, the instruction leaflet of your product, they're probably not the customer that is scalable or that you can find 10 others. So you need to find customers who are repeatable and who are repeatable with less effort every time you want to, to grow. But I think once you've got that formula, you should then be really aggressive and confident in knowing you can go after that market and you can find more of those people and not sort of, you know, feel like it's accidental. Actually, customers will behave like tribes, like packs. And once one customer has found your tool and your product, they will tell other people who are like them. Other people will then go, oh, they're using your product, I'm going to use you too. So you need to, by that point, you need to have a very confident voice about why you're offering value to those customers and then go for it.
0: Okay. So basically, your customers are your best salespeople?
2: Yes, yes, Absolutely.
0: Okay. Uh, I'll just finish with one question as I put to the three. What, what makes a great product?
3: I think it's, I mean, it's, it's quite similar to what, what you were just saying. I think a great product is something that, that people talk about, that people tell their friends about, um, and that makes one customer into ten customers. But so, like, For me, that's, that's, that's what a great product is. If, you've, if, like, if that's happening, then, then you pretty much nailed it, and if it's not, then, then you need to improve. I think... It's when things just work,
4: I think that came up as a part of a quote earlier, But when you use a product and something just doesn't work as expected and you just feel frustrated and that's not a great product. And when you're surprised that there's something you don't have to do because it's been done for you, there's little moments of delight, I think, in the product is what makes a really great product.
2: I'm not really going to say anything much different, really, because it, it, it is, I mean, and also your colleagues have already said it, is you basically need to know what problem you are solving. And if you can describe in a couple of words what problem you are solving, you're going to get and find people who absolutely love your product and who will thank you for it. And they'll thank you for paying you for that solution. And then that's that is a great feeling when, when people say, you have changed my life um, because of the product you've, you know, you've given them. And that's because you've managed to nail the solution to their problem.
0: Yeah. Seems like a good point to break. Listen, thank you very much for uh, taking the time and come talk to us this evening. A round of applause for our panel. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, just visit soundcloud.com forward slash intercom. And if you want to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.io.